two weeks in a row. Now we're going to get to preaching, I believe, unless God continues to push. But two weeks in a row, God has ministered in such a special way. And I believe that this word that we're going to preach today, I believe it will minister to us. And I think it will confirm what we've felt and what we've already heard. God is pulling at us with his unfailing love and relationship. Thank you, singers. Amen. Thank you, Nada. If you could open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57. Amen. I'm going to preach today about the unfailing love of God. And we've got a lot of men here, and I want to warn you in advance that I will speak of us today as part of the church in the feminine sense because God is depicted as a husband to us in this spiritual relationship, and the church is represented as his bride, his wife, and a woman. And so on Valentine's week, I wanted and really felt drawn to this text. It just jumped out at me. And the Bible uses the analogy of human relationships so we can understand God's love. And we bring, in a sense, our frail human tendencies into both relationships, right? I mean, the divorce rate's pretty high. We're fragile in the natural sense in relationships, and I think even more so in our relationship with God. And so he depicts us sometimes as a bride who has trouble staying faithful to him in our spiritual relationships. And so I have a very uplifting Valentine's message for us. And listen to these encouraging words, and then we'll get to our text. I'm going to lay a little background here. But you come here, you children of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. It gets worse. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. Here you went up to offer your sacrifices. And behind your doors and your doorposts you have put your pagan symbols. You see, the Israelites were to write on their doorhouse and posts upon the entrances of their house the constant reminder that Jehovah is the only God, but instead put pagan symbols in that place. In fact, I was working in a law hall in a university, and I saw this Jewish law professor. He would go in, and he would touch that doorpost where his, uh, the tetragrammaton really was, the name of God, the symbol of God. He would touch it, kiss it, before he would walk into his law office. It was amazing. But the Israelites kept pagan symbols there instead, the Lord goes on to say through Isaiah, Forgetting me, you uncovered your bed, climbed into it, opened it wide. You went to the god Molech with olive oil and increased your perfumes. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have not been true to me and neither remembered me nor taken this to heart? And we're going to have our text now on the screen. Do you see the relationship imagery that the prophet uses and in our text, Isaiah 57, 13 through 15, when you cry out for help, 
Let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry them far off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and a holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I want to speak on the subject unfailing love. In our text and in the preceding chapter, Isaiah records the numerous sins of Judah, contrasting them with the unfailing love of God and his desire to compel a nation who has gone astray to come back to him and experience a revived heart. This text was probably written, or at least the words were spoken by Isaiah, during the reign of Manasseh, who at the age of 12, after the death of his father Hezekiah, started his reign and sat on the throne of Judah for 55 years. He was arguably, in his apostasy, the most evil king that Judah had ever had, and yet he reigned the longest. The name Manasseh means one who forgets. One who forgets. He forgot just how great God was all by himself. He forgot the God of his father Hezekiah who began reforms and knocking down the idols that had seeped their way into the nation. But Manasseh forgot maybe the God of his youth. And the Bible says in a stinging indictment that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He resuscitated paganism and made idolatry great again. He revived Moloch worship to which he sacrificed one, if not more, of his sons and encouraged his people to offer theirs. He tried this idea called syncretism, which said we can have Jehovah God right next door to Baal. We can have Jehovah and Moloch and the gods of the Canaanites right next door to each other. We can have proximity. We can have holiness on one side and paganism on the other, and you know what God thought about it. He sent a prophet by to remind them that he was God, and beside him there was no other. And so to God, Judah's idolatry was like spiritual adultery, and he uses that language. It's kind of harsh, and I could, if there were no ladies here, I could take you to some other passages that go a little bit further and are a little bit more, shall we say, uh, real. But it's harsh language that he uses because idolatry is a harsh thing for the people of God to engage in. It's like spiritual adultery. And this people, in less than a hundred years or so, would eventually go into captivity in Babylon because of their sin. But Isaiah was sent by God to address the wickedness of Manasseh, and the national congregation was depicted as a woman. 
And like any relationship today, if you've been married long enough or you've ever been in a relationship, maybe engaged or just dating for long term and something happened that just kind of caused a stumbling block, maybe it was a breakup, maybe the engagement was called off, maybe you saw a counselor or a lawyer or both, but something began to happen in the relationship. And I've been married 18 years, and let me tell you something, marriage takes work on both sides. Can I get an amen? Wives, needle your husband, say it takes a lot of work. And separation really begins in the heart long before a choice is made, long before any event takes place to begin to seal the demise of the relationship, long before the lawyer is consulted or the counselor is visited and you pay your copay. Something begins to happen in the heart of one or both of the people in the relationship. And so long before actions prove to be irreconcilable, there is a heart issue that has taken place. And Isaiah kind of depicts this in our text today. He talks about the destructive nature of sin upon a spiritually disoriented person who has looked for the love of God and the relationship with God in wrong places in wrong places. We have all, I think, been prone to do that from time to time. We find in the preceding chapter, if we could take the time today to read the whole thing, the preceding chapter gives us signs that the relationship is over. He characterizes signs of a spiritually wayward heart and relationship troubles where the other person, the other party, is oversleeping, they're overeating, and they're overwhelmed. They're oversleeping in Isaiah 56.10, maybe due to depression. Maybe because the relationship's not what it was, they can't face a day. And so, he says they're lying around and dreaming they love to sleep. They're in a spiritual slumber. No focus. They're overeating and drinking. Maybe with a worldly appetite in 56.11, it says they're dogs with mighty appetites, they never have enough. Come, each other cries, let me get wine, let me drink our fill of beer, and tomorrow will be like today or even far better. They have worldly appetites. That's one of the signs that the relationship is over. They oversleep, overeat, and drink. And the final end of this is that they're overwhelmed. It's called the stress of sin. In 57.10 and 20-21, to 21, they have no peace. Isaiah says, you're wearied by your ways. The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Pretty sobering, isn't it? But in spite of all of this, God begins to call them back to him in an intimate way, and they returned he said, I'm going to bring you back to me. I am going to call you. Yes, I'm going to indict you. I'm going to be real with you. How many know that God needs to be real with us? He has to be real. He has to address where we are. But then he says, hey, you don't have to stay where you're at. You can come back to me. 
You can come back into my presence. I can revive what used to be when we were like young lovers walking through the cool of the day and I was saying, Adam, where are you? And you replied and you met me there before sin separated us. And so God calls us back as he did in Isaiah. I'm going to break down our text for us in just a few points in Isaiah 57 and show how God uses his unfailing love and the tools of a seasoned seducer to bring those whom he loves back to him. Some of you cats thought you were cool and smooth back when you were dating. You could say the right things. You could do the right things to get somebody's eye. But let me tell you something. God is way better than you. He knows just what to say. He knows just what to do to bring us back into relationship with him. And so God's unfailing love causes us to revive in our heart. Isaiah 57, 13 says this. If you have your Bibles open, feel free to look down and follow. He says, when you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you, in jest, of course. But the wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. Now, to Isaiah's day, the land was the holy land. It was a place where God's temple was. So he was saying, you are going to have a portion in my holy temple. It's like you own part of the temple where my presence is. What a promise that is. If we serve God, if we come back to him, it's like we own a little slice of heaven right here. We have communion with God. We get to be where he is. Where the ark of his presence is, we have a place there with him. We have an inheritance in God's house. Notice he says, when you cry out, he knows better than we do. That to the wayward heart, it's only a matter of time before you will find yourself away from God's presence and crying out to him for help. He said, the idols, the God substitutes, the things that you have allowed to come between you and I, speaking for God, will not be a refuge then because they're made of wood, they're made of metal. You look at them, they're inanimate, they cannot talk to you. They cannot stretch forth their hand and touch you. They cannot send a prophet by with a word. They're just an idol. And instead of praying to that thing you've put in between you and God, you're going to realize, I've got to go back to God. I've got to get back to where He is. I've got to start talking to Him again. I've got to remember where I used to be in God's presence. So when you cry out. But then He says, whoever, whoever, you could be a sinner, you could be a saint, you could be a backslider, you could be a drunker, you could be an adulterer, it doesn't matter. He says, whoever you are, whoever will, the Bible says, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Whoever takes refuge in me, you have a claim to my holy mountain and my temple. You see, God makes a way for us to come near to him. 
57.14 in Isaiah, and it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. Remove the obstacles. The first gift that I ever bought in Ada, and I'm going to have you come up here in a minute, so get ready, prepare your mind. There's only one way to illustrate this, and I'm going to use you because you're the only lady in my life. Praise God. Amen. The first, she might even remember the first thing I ever bought her. What was it, babe? Well, the plane ticket. That preceded the Little Mermaid doll. I'm kind of embarrassed about the mermaid doll. But she could sing, and she had red hair, and she was my Ariel. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. But I bought her a plane ticket. You know why? Because I wanted her near me. I had met her in time past, and there was something about her, and we both dated other people, and then that didn't quite work out, and I was like, you know what? It's time to find out. And I got her a plane ticket. She joined my family and I and spent a few days with us. Got to meet my folks, and it was over. My dad came to me and said, she's the one. I know it. I can see it in your eyes. And he wasn't telling me anything I didn't already know. I wanted her near me. I wanted proximity. And the Lord said, listen, it will be said, prepare the way. When an important person came into town, a dignitary, a prince, the cry was often heard when they would come, prepare the way, remove the obstacles. We don't want any barriers. We don't want their chariot to have to go around. It would be embarrassing. So they would send people out to make sure their ride in was smooth. And John said the same thing about the arrival of Jesus. Make his path straight. Let the crooked be straight. Let every low thing be elevated. Make a path for our God. And so God is speaking through the prophet, prepare the roads, remove the obstacles, the exiles who have been coming uh, away from me, who have been drifting away, are now in exile, are returning unto me. Now he said this before the exile. These words were spoken before the exile, but they're recorded as if it happened after the exile, which caused some scholars to think that Isaiah was written after the exile. Because how could God know what was going to happen? That's their thinking, right? They need to get out of seminary. God knew they were going into exile. He was telling them, here's how you can stop from going, but even if you don't, guess what? When it's time for you to come back, it doesn't matter if it was your fault. Seventy years are appointed, and then you're coming back into my territory, which I said was yours. So the exiles are returning. Go out and cry, prepare the road. Remove the obstacles to their return. Make it easy for them to get back to me. Build up and remove. Points to the construction of the highway of a spiritual return. I love 75 when it's not plogged up. I love the tollway. I love George Bush, but can I tell you there's a highway that I like a whole lot more than all three of those. It's the highway for somebody that's making a spiritual return back to God. And I'm here to tell somebody, go out, prepare the way, make it easy for the exiles to come back in. Don't let anything get in the way. Remove all the impediments, every obstacle, remove idols, idols. 
and build up the temple courts. Remove sin and build up righteousness. Remove indifference and build up prayer. Remove religion. Religion can be a great stumbling block. You don't have to look a certain way to get in God's presence. You don't have to wear a tie to preach, although I'll be wearing a tie most of the time. But I just know God said if I take it off, I can still anoint you. Sometimes our traditions become religion, and then religion becomes a barrier for us and others. We don't have religious traditions with God. We have relationship. We have traditions in our churches, and that's okay. Every, every church has them. Every church has them. They're not wrong. But if religion is a barrier, we are here for a relationship with God. It doesn't matter if it says Methodist Wesleyan on the door. When we get in God's presence, we have relationship. And he sees past the name on the sign and sees that we are in relationship with him. And so God is saying, listen, roll out the red carpet. People are coming back to me. Buy a plane ticket. Get them back into my presence because God always initiates our return. You may think that you decided to find God, but really that's not how it works. As the man, and God is a man of tradition, he's a God of tradition, he wasn't used to all that, the women make the first move. It wasn't Sadie Hawkins' dance with God. Right? He is the man. He ain't going to allow a lady to ask him to marry him. He goes out looking for a bride. He goes out looking for a people. He goes and initiates contact. The, the itching and the squirming you feel in your spirit is not because somehow you woke up with a desire to be holy, but God began to deal with you. God began to speak with you. Even the reason you're here today, in spite of the circumstances you came in, God brought you here. And he has a word for you today. His voice has called you to where you are. He's called me here. I didn't know... I was going to sing that song. That song didn't come on me until literally I stood here and two seconds before I looked at my wife and she looked panicked. And I didn't know God was going to move in with a word. I didn't know someone was going to be sensitive to God's voice on the pulpit and in the pew. And I didn't know he was going to speak to us in the way that he did. But he always initiates contact. And then God speaks to... Woo the wayward. Remember, he's a smooth man. He knows how to go after the one he loves. It says in Isaiah 57, 15, for this is what the high exalted one says. Baby, I'm going to try out some old come on lines on you here. Men have been known to use words to woo a lover. But God has skills, and he uses his words to seduce us to fall back in love with him. And I have a feeling that his words are somewhat better than the ones that I may or may not have used on my wife. Let's see if these work. Let them see your reaction to this romance. Baby, did it hurt when you fell from heaven? 
Do you have a map? Because I just got lost in your eyes. How am I doing? How am I doing? Are your legs tired? Yes. <laughs> Say no. No. <laughs> because you've been running through my mind all night. <laughs> Baby, are you a library book? No. No. Because <laughs> I'd like to check you out. I've got one last one. I'm going to skip a few. Is your name Google? No. And you can be seated with this because you've got everything I'm searching for. How about that? Cash me outside. How about that? God is a speaking God. And from the beginning, he always sent out a word to cause dialogue, to cause relationship with those he loved. And on a few occasions, people even heard audibly his voice. He spoke to prophets. He's spoken through his word. And the Bible says that in these last days, he has spoken to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He created to be heir of the world. We're speaking of the man, Christ Jesus. For me, I can tell you, and I'm going to hurry, it was love at first sound. I have never seen Him. But as a boy, I remember seeing those that loved Him back and those who he loved, overtaken by his presence. And I began to hear the message preached from godly apostolic pulpits, and I began to hear the words that pulled my father, who was 24 years old, out of alcoholism and drugs and trying to outrun a police officer not being successful, rolling his car, running out into a field, cutting his face on barbed wire. My parents were on the verge of divorce. He came from an alcoholic home. Her mother married five times. She lived in foster care. That was the world that I would have been raised in had it not been for at nine months of age they came in and God began to miraculously touch their life. And so when I was sitting like my children were with me today, I began to love the one that they loved. I began to hear the words of the initiator calling for me and saying, hey, I've got a relationship with your daddy, but I've got room for you. They've already come to the cross, but there is room at the cross for you. And he began to use his words, and to me it was love at first sound. I would listen to Dallas Holm riding around with my mother in her Datsun B210 with the plastic seats and the sun would be beating down on me, and I would drool on that seat and wake up, but I would hear those songs, and I would hear James Dobson, and I would hear J. Vernon McGee and all the people on the radio back at the time, and somehow I began to feel love at the sound of the one initiating me, and that love has never left. And God began to demonstrate to me that I was being called as his own. And he opened up his mouth. But he did not tell me what I was necessarily. 
You see men in pickup lines use empty flattery, such as, baby, your teeth are like stars. They come out at night. Wait a second. No, probably scratch that. Wait a second. I'm getting confused. That's not right. But we tell people, we tell the ladies, you look so nice tonight. Your hair is so beautiful. Your dress, oh, you're so smart. You're funny. But when God begins to entice us, instead of saying what we are, he begins telling us who he is. You see, the same thing works in real relationships. Instead of using flattery by saying you're pretty, you cook good, you dress nice, you might want to tell her, if any single men are here, you're a man of character. That you're a man that will love her until death do you part. That you have a job. That you're not living in your mother's basement at 42 years old. That I'm going to live godly in front of you. That I'm going to be faithful to you. Tell her who you are. This is what God did for them. He began to tell them that he was faithful. He began to tell them where he lived. He said, this is what the high and lofty one says. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to tell you who I am. And he begins to reveal himself, that he has a name and it's holy, that he has essential character of holiness, and that he is high and lofty, and he lives in a place of his own. He's got his own territory. He's got a nice crib, a good dwelling place, and he lives forever. He's not going to die on you in this relationship. He's going to be there when you need him. He fills all space. This is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. He tells you, just like we do, we introduce ourselves and tell them, where we live, we have a house, and he tells us what he does. He says, I am high and lofty, and God does what only he can do. That means he saves, he delivers, he heals, he restores. Aren't you glad that God is not like anybody else? He can do the things that he promises to do. And one of the other things God does is that he says, I live in a high and holy and lofty place. I live forever. My name is holy, but I also live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. He wants to dwell with us. That's part of his wooing. He has these words. He tells us all that he can do. He says, I've got a place for you. I've got a great name. I'm famous. You can put your trust in me. I'm not going to die on you. I, I'm going to live forever, baby. My 401K is just going to keep going on and on and on. I don't live in the basement. I live in a high and holy place. God is seducing a bride to come back to remember that he is that one that made that promise and nothing has changed. And so, but he says, listen, I'm all that, but guess what? It's not the same unless... We're in proximity. Unless you're with me. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him. 
who was contrite and lowly. He told the thief on the cross today, you shall be with me in paradise. He told Thomas, he said, listen, Thomas, I go to prepare a place, not so I can be by myself, but I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you're going to be also. God wants proximity with us. I read about a college student who was a dishwasher, and a Buddhist began to tell him about their religion. And this college student began to share his faith, and he said, listen, I get to live forever because I believe in Jesus. And the Buddhist said, I don't think that would be too cool. That would be kind of boring. And it perplexed this Christian young man, and then he realized, I have painted eternity to him without Jesus. And the fact that makes our eternity so great is not the streets of gold. It's not eternal life. Trust me, folks. If I could imagine living this life eternally, I would soon be bored and say, I'm ready to check out and go to sleep. Let's be honest. You can only take so many vacations. You can only check into work so many times. You can only have so many water bills. But being with Jesus for eternity, being with Him for eternity, being with my family with Him for eternity is what makes it heaven for me. Why don't we come with the musicians? John said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people. It is with men. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Every tear. This is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and a holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And this is why. To revive the spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. You see, there was a particular way that God told us that He loved us. I've read the five love languages, and I think my wife maybe a time or two has put a marker in that book and laid it out for, to remind me what her love language is. But God has a love language. It's found in John 3.16. Probably the most famous verse. It's painted on people's chests at a football game. It's on signs. Everybody can quote it. It's the essence of the gospel in one verse. It reveals that God is a lover. Not only the fact of God's love, but the manner of His love. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel glory. It was depicted as beauty to prove His love. Listen. Then the Lord God said, I entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hand and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. 
Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. So you were exceedingly beautiful. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. You see, in the Old Testament, his bride was depicted as being adorned with beauty to reflect his love for them. But in the New Testament, God's unfailing love was declared through the giving of his incarnate life at Calvary. The incarnation was love on layaway. The gospel was his love explained. The cross was love on display. The resurrection was overcoming love. And the Holy Spirit with us is love indwelling. And heaven will be love eternal. But the verse says, God so loved the world. That little word so, huto, means in this manner. Literally in this manner, God loved the world that he gave as we stand together today. He gave. He gave his life. I've done a lot of things to prove my love for my wife, for my family, for others. But I've never given in such a way that it's cost my life. And John 3.16 emphasizes not how much God loves us because we can't quantify it, but how He loved us. And that He invested His very life. John says, in that while we were yet sinners, God commended or God revealed His love to us. God placed His love toward us and He died for us. And He did all of that today. I believe He did what He did. And I'm sorry I'm going about 15 minutes over because of the way the service has gone. But everything God has done in this hour and 15 minutes is to show us that He loves us. It's to make a highway back for somebody to come back in full relationship with Him. He has wooed us today, I'm telling you. He knows what He's doing. He is a master talker. He is a master at the art of love. And He has wooed us today. And He does all that He has done to revive us. The spirit of the lowly and the heart of the contrite. I read a about that story, you may have heard it, Danny Gokey, Tell Your Heart to Beat Again. It's a true story. There was a pastor in Ohio that had a heart surgeon that went to his church, and he told the heart surgeon, I, I would like to watch a surgery. And so the surgeon invited his pastor in. The day of the surgery came. They rolled the patient in, began to open her chest cavity, took her heart out, began to repair it. And one of the things that they do is that they have to restart the heart before they put it back in and sew them up. And when the procedure came to start the heart, it wouldn't start. Finally, the doctor did something that's probably not in JAMA, the Journal of American Medicine. He did something unusual. He knelt down on his knees and said, Miss Johnson, this is your doctor. We have fixed your heart. We have repaired it. There's nothing wrong with your heart. All you have to do, Miss Johnson, if you can hear 
my voice is I need you to tell your heart. Send a signal to make it start beating again. And that's exactly what happened. In this afternoon, folks, I'm telling you, your heart's been fixed. The surgeon has come in. All you have to do to get back to where you want to be with God is you've got to tell your heart. Start beating again. Just like it used to. Just like it was before the surgeon came in today. Tell it to start beating again. Get yourself back into relationship with God. I wonder if we could raise our hands for a moment as we begin to sing.